1: In today's world, people feel lost in a sea of ideas. Which ones should we accept? Stay tuned because you're listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Here is your host, Kurt Jarris.
0: Well, a good day to you, and thanks for joining us here for another episode of Veracity Hill, where we are striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Very nice to be with you here yet again from our office in downtown West Chicago, uh, home of the best international apologetics, theology, and other stuff podcast, right, Chris? Right, indeed. (laughs) Happens to be the only home, so far as we know, to any apologetics podcast, maybe even only any podcast, for that matter. West Chicago, you mean. In West Chicago. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, At any rate, we've got a a very intriguing episode uh, for you today, where we are thinking about a... uh, uh, what for some people is a controversial, perhaps very controversial topic. Um, it's a, uh, something that uh, piques my interest a little bit as I've studied the doctrine of original sin for my doctoral research. Um, but something that I think Christians should uh, really give pause to consider, uh, especially perhaps if they were raised uh, in a, uh, a home that emphasized a sort of literal reading of Genesis. Uh, And so uh, we are asking um, a very intriguing question today. Was there death before the fall? And so uh, for this uh, program, this episode today, I've invited uh, Ronald E. Osborne. He is the author of Death Before the Fall. And it was put out by University Press uh, about five years or so ago. And it continues to be a um, a talked-about book uh, in some circles. And so... uh, Ron is the uh, executive director of the uh, John Henry uh, Widener Foundation for Altruism. Ron, did I say that correctly?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. And you're also the associate professor of ethics and philosophy at La Sierra University. Uh, So you – perhaps like myself, wear multiple hats. And before we jump into the conversation, I I take it the full professor is is sort of a traditional position, but tell me about the foundation for altruism that you are overseeing.
2: Yeah, sure. I'd be delighted to. So um, the foundation was actually started in 1994 by John Widener and his wife, Naomi Widener. John Widener was a um a rescuer during World War II he is the founder and he was the founder and leader of what came to be known as the Dutch Paris escape line which was a kind of underground network that uh saved the lives of uh perhaps as many as 3000 Jews downed allied air pilots and others who were fleeing Nazi occupied Europe mm. so the foundation that I'm a part of is basically dedicated to preserving that history and uh, and encouraging um, action that's in the spirit of John Widener. Mm. So uh, something I've been very um, excited to be a part of for the last few years now.
0: And um, sort of uh – uh, having associations with and, and thinking about, um, say, suffering, instances of suffering, um, was also a, a part of um, your journey as you uh, thought through the issues about uh, the fall, death and fall and the fall. Um, and uh, so t- tell us, um, before we even jump into the, the book, you do talk about your upbringing um, and okay. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, your backgrounds, and what really got you interested into thinking more about Death Before the Fall.
2: Sure. Well, I was actually born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, um, which it, it, I'm still very much a part of. And the Adventist tradition has long had a concern with uh, questions about theodicy and, uh, and questions about God's justice. And at the same time, the Adventist tradition has has tended towards a fairly literalistic reading of Genesis one and and uh, and Genesis two. and um, And so I was raised very much sort of steeped in Adventist um, creationist apologetics and Adventist uh, sort of biblical literalism. But later on in life, those were, Uh, hermeneutics that I began to question more, particularly in the light of uh, problems of suffering. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my background. I was raised actually internationally my parents were missionaries so i grew up in different parts of um the world of of the world of asia and africa thailand taiwan and uh, zimbabwe zimbabwe was kind of where i spent the bulk of my childhood and i actually begin the book death before the fall by sharing a a story from my childhood growing up in zimbabwe Mm. encountering encountering uh death in nature in a kind of vivid way for the first time Mm.
0: yes very nice one of the things that i um enjoyed um, – I, I try my best as I do with most of my uh, interviewees is to read the introduction to their book, uh, see where they're coming from and to get a, a short view of sort of what's, what's to come. Um, I really liked what you had to say here in, in your introduction. Um, you said, readers should be fairly warned from the outset that I offer few confident answers to the problem of animal suffering in the manner of some Christian apologists. Uh, you continue on a, a bit further on. The ideas presented in these pages are offered in open-ended exploratory form, based on the belief that partial answers do exist, and I think that um, speaks highly of you know one's intellectual humility that they're really striving. For truth, as our tagline of the show goes, um, but that maybe we don't have all the answers. But here are some here are some possibilities, or maybe here are some answers that we do know. And so I really appreciate your um, your approach to the topic at hand uh, because you have this sort of willingness to say, you know, hey, let's see where this takes us. Now,
2: uh, yeah, thank you for thank you for saying that. You know, I have to I have to confess that some readers have uh, have actually come away from the book thinking that my intentions are more polemical or something, mm. because I do have some fairly critical things to say in the book about, um, about certain positions that I no longer hold. Mm. And, but I, I, really have tried my best throughout the book to, um, to, to remain open as much as I can and to emphasize that we're all, there, there are enough problems to go around for all of us. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, um, so I,
0: I call theology a pick your poison field. Uh you know I study theolo- yeah. theology formally and it's there's no perfect position. Um and I don't just say that because, you know, uh you know, some people might say that sort of uh in an abstract way, but but really there are challenges and difficulties to any position one might take in just a matter of which mess do you want to deal with. <laughs> so uh, in your yeah, first, no, absolutely. In your first chapter, you um, talk about um, the creation and, and really sort of in the first section of your book, you deal with the you know traditional literistic um, or literal <laughs> reading of the creation account and the account of the fall. So I sort of want to just um, uh, throw it uh, out to you here uh, to explain wh- what is sort of the literal approach. And maybe what are some of the shortcomings that you find to that position?
2: Sure. Well, maybe I should um, back up a little bit and first just share with you a little bit more about the genesis of this book. Um, You know, this book was written around—most of the chapters in this book were written around 2010, 2011, in the midst of very heated conversations within my own confessional faith community around the question of creation— And mostly at the time, I'm not a scientist by training, nor a theologian by training. I'm actually a political scientist by background. And as I was kind of listening to the way that people were talking, I just kept thinking to myself, you know, no, it's not that easy, or it's not that clean cut. It's not that simple. And... And so at a certain point, I began to write things here and there, um, mostly for an online magazine called Spectrum Magazine that were really kind of in reaction to the really dogmatic, um, almost strident voices that I was hearing. Mm. And out of that, you know, I ended up having a variety of things that kind of were all in various ways tackling the, the problem of um, – of suffering and uh and the debate about creation and evolution and i started to think well maybe i have enough material here to actually make a book out of it so yeah. the book the book ended up being um a kind of eclectic mix of different reflections and essays and uh responses to this kind of debate going on it, it wasn't that i sat down and, and and had a um a book in mind from the very beginning mm. and so uh, so the book is not like a really systematic theology or anything like of that nature it really is more like occasional essays that are all revolving around certain themes mm. and uh, basically a real turning point for me in my own thinking about creation and evolution uh, was a thought that that I don't know why it had never occurred to me previously in my life but it was the thought that when it when it finally struck me it made me realize that um, that what I had grown up to believe was a tidy solution to the suffering problem with animals was actually not a solution and and once I saw that it kind of opened the door for me to start thinking in new ways Mm. and so, um, so, but that's kind of jumping ahead to the to the second half of the book. The first half of the book that you asked me about had to do with, you know, what are some of the critiques of um, of the traditional way of reading the story? And, and what is that traditional way? And, well, for one thing, I don't think it is a traditional way, except with a very short view of history. Mm. Because, you know, this kind of, the, the literalism that we now associate with contemporary creationism is not really historically grounded and that's something i point out in the first half of the book you know if you go way back to the church fathers and and fairly early christian thinkers there were lots of people who were reading the book of genesis um in ways that that don't sound at all like modern day um creationism or or fundamentalism Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and you know so, so they had a variety of ways of doing this. And now, one of the interesting things, or almost um, almost ironic things, is that when you look at like uh, someone like Saint Augustine, he he has a book that's uh, the title of the book is the literal meaning of Genesis. Yes, <laughs> you know, so he uses the word literal in there. Like, I mean, he he believes that Genesis is literal, but he what literal means for him is very different than what it means to us. He doesn't read it as being a strict scientific or chronological account he doesn't believe that creation happened in um, six literal 24-hour periods um, you know so so he reads the, the book of Genesis literally but that does not mean literal in the way that it has come to mean today
0: mm. right right yes so and yeah I was gonna say so Augustine's work <laughs> I, I was familiar with because uh, I cited it. A number of times in my uh, chapter that I wrote on his view of original sin. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I'm familiar with that. And and you're right. So when I say the word traditional, yeah, I don't mean to convey – I myself don't mean to convey this is the view of the Christian church for 2,000 years. Uh, I guess I mean to convey something like traditional American evangelicalism, <laughs> which has a right. a short history relatively speaking.
2: Yeah, and so that's, that's part of the, the answer to your question, which is, you know, for me, one of the things that was important for me to um, look at was what, what did earlier Christians think about these problems, not just evangelical American Christians. And, uh, and then trying to, uh, you know, reconnect with that long, deep history of Christian thought that goes way back 2,000 years. And not only Christian thought, by the way, also I think Jewish thought is significant uh in how you know when we wrestle with these questions. And so um so that that's part of what's going on in the first half of the book is looking at uh looking at these trying to look at these questions with a long from the long view of history, not just our more shortened kind of time frame of the past, you know, one hundred years or something. Yeah. Um
0: additionally,
2: yeah.
0: I was gonna say so um what is it – for many people that do ha- take a, um, a literal approach, they seem uh, in many ways passionately uh, against the non-literal interpretations. What do you think – why do you think that is, that they uh, – there is this fierce response? Uh, because as I'm sure you've, you've experienced the, a strong pushback <laughs> from within your own denomination – much less the fact that there are others out there in other denominations that operate the same way.
2: Yeah, and, and actually there may be a bridge there or, or a link because, um, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, which is not very well known or well understood uh, within sort of larger evangelical circles, uh, in many ways had, had a kind of outsized influence on the rest of the evangelical world in spreading creationist ideas, uh, and this was really via the work of this individual named George McCready Price, who, um, he, he wrote some books, that, uh, he was kind of a self-taught uh, guy, he didn't have really formal training in science, but he was kind of self-taught, and he advanced these ideas about what he called flood geology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and had a big influence on you know people around the 1920s and thereabouts, um, including uh, William Jennings Bryan in the infamous uh, Scopes so-called monkey trial of 1925. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, Bryan basically picked up on some of George McCready Price's writings and even quoted from them in the trial. Um, and but then in 1961, these um, these two non-adventists john whitcomb and henry morris wrote a book 1961 called the genesis flood um which really catapulted creationist ideas into the minds of millions of, of evangelicals in america and led to you know the rise of organizations like answers in genesis and um the Institute for creation research. Well, the interesting thing is that Whitcomb and Morris both actually were inspired directly by reading George McCready price. And so there is this kind of interesting itinerary where, um, seventh day Adventists, uh, basically made these arguments for literal creation that got picked up on by other evangelicals and then entered the the mainstream. Ah. If you go further, you know, if you go back though, to, to the early period of, um, of biblical inerrancy and and biblical fundamentalism uh the interesting thing is that a lot of those thinkers actually were not um very worried about embracing evolutionary ideas so for example princeton theologian bb warfield Mm -hmm. um, he basically said that there was nothing in genesis that opposed evolution Another was uh, George Wright who was one of the writers of the the original commentaries called the fundamentals um, you know which kind of marked the, the 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 fundamental the rise of the fundamentalist movement and George Wright actually endorsed the day age theory of creation so mm-hmm. each day in Genesis represented a long period of time yeah so that was kind of like early early um, Thinking among, among funda- in fundamentalist circles was actually not even particularly worried about this question. Mm. But then over time, it became a bigger deal. Um, I don't know. You'd probably have to go to somebody else to really better understand this whole history and why evangelicalism took that kind of turn. Um, maybe someone like Ron Numbers, his book The Creationist, is kind of a standard history for for creationist
0: movement. Sure, sure.
2: Um, well, I,
0: I feel like I've still gotten a good uh, a good starter here <laughs> with with that history. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I could I could certainly talk to you about why Adventism in particular was very concerned about about literal creationism. Part of it has to do with Adventist apologetics for the. Um, the importance of the seventh day Sabbath as the day of the correct day of worship. Huh. You know, as you may as you may know, Adventists worship on Saturday rather than Sunday. Right. And there was a concern that if you didn't have a literal creation week, then there were, it would somehow undermine the significance of having a literal uh, a literal Sabbath day on which to to worship.
0: Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Somehow being the the critical yeah. word there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I use the words that word somehow because, of course, in Judaism, it's never been a problem. Right. You know, there have been non-literal readings of of Genesis one in Judaism for thousands of years now, and uh, and obviously, it has never prevented uh, the Jewish tradition from worshiping on on the Sabbath. So, you know, I'm not sure why the theology of Sabbath keeping should be directly tied to. Uh, to a literal creation week. But anyways, those are kind of peculiar, unique concerns of, of the Adventist tradition. Um, and so, you know, through this kind of kind of uh, winding path, it's become a large concern among lots of Christians, like you say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, for you, when you were along your personal journey— um, <laughs> being raised in this tradition, what sort of clued you in like, hey, maybe my – maybe the way I was taught was mistaken. Uh, What were some of the arguments, perhaps information or arguments uh, that you were thinking about and maybe even now, what are some things – what are some arguments you look to? Um, You know, I – from looking through your book, I I saw one that like stood out to me in particular where you're going through um, sort of the mathematics behind it. Like, hey, if Adam had to name all the animals – you know, within that time period, I mean, it just it just wouldn't work,
2: <laughs> right? Right. Well, so that particular part of the book, I'm, you know, so if you're if you're a very strict, uh, I don't even like using the word literal because or literalist because I kind of feel like literalists literally get it wrong, mm. um, but yeah, they're not literalist the, enough. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think if we take Genesis literally, we would not read it scientifically if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons i i argue for that is because it seems that just by a kind of plain surface reading genesis chapter 1 and genesis chapter 2 offer quite different chronologies of what's happening um, during their respective creation weeks and and if you try to somehow reconcile them on scientific grounds rather than on theological grounds, you end up having to do some really elaborate gymnastics. So, um, you know, on the the sixth day of of the week, Adam is created and then he's, uh, he discovers that he's alone and, or he's lonely and then all the animals have to subsequently be created and brought past him. He has to name them all and he's immediately put back to sleep. And, um, and then Eve is created and then he's immediately raised back up again. It starts to almost sound comically absurd. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, but those are the gymnastics you have to go through if you're trying to make it all fit scientifically. Mm -hmm. And I think it begs a really, um, important question, which is why, do people feel that it must be made to work scientifically and i think that one of the real ironies is of this kind of creationism this kind of attempt to make genesis speak to us in a in a scientific way i think one of the great ironies is that people who are committed to that project think of themselves as as opposing modern materialistic atheistic uh you know uh scientific naturalism or something like that sure, right sure but in fact it seems like they have a um a very modernist kind of obsession with scientists hmm. and you know because we live in an age in which scientific truth is held up as being the paramount truth and the most uh, authoritative form of knowledge in our culture you know and so there seems to be a response among some Christians to therefore say, well, well, therefore the Bible has to be a scientific book because it has to be the highest kind of authority, right? Mm. But in a way, that's just paying uh, homage to modern science and the power that it exercises over our uh, over our worldviews.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um,
2: you know, maybe maybe that's not the intent of the book at all, and maybe we should maybe instead of trying to make the Bible, you know, read. To answer all of our scientific questions, we should kind of readjust what we think is most important if you know, because there are other ways of accessing truth other than through other than through science. So
0: right. And um I know we're not going um uh into the minutiae per se of some of the arguments and thoughts you present, but there were things that I had never even considered uh from someone of your earlier perspective. So for example, you mentioned that um um, you know, why is it that animals had sharp claws, uh, you know, that God created them with sharp claws? Well, it wouldn't have been for um, for killing. It would have been for scratching tree bark. Um, and I just – even though I – you know, some of us had been raised in that literal tradition, we perhaps never even thought of the implications of that view that we would have to hold to such a position. Uh, and it would just bring about these – Uh, complexities and in some ways absurdities and then as you go through you sort of lead the the reader to realize oh I mean then is you know how is God responsible for all of a sudden um, the animals now killing as a result of the curse Um, that's you know I I think it's just something that folks don't give credence to um, when they think about these uh, important issues and you've in that respect, done your due diligence.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, that was for me kind of the pivot point, the turning point. It was when this thought kind of just dawned on me, and I don't know why I hadn't really thought about it before, but it was when it just dawned on me that whether you're a creationist who believes in, um, you know, creation 6,000 years ago or something, or if you're a theistic evolutionist who believes that that everything got started 14 billion years ago or, or, you know, with the big bang or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whichever of these positions you hold, you still have a dilemma when it comes to the theodicy problem, because the reality is, is right now all around us pervasively throughout the entire animal kingdom, we have animals preying on other animals and animals that seem to be perfectly adapted for Um, predation and carnivorousness
3: Mm.
2: and that that extends all the ways from the the kind of apex predators at the top of the food chain the lions and the sharks and things like that um right down to you know uh, almost microscopic parasites Mm. And, and um and so the question becomes well um how on earth did these creatures become this way and it seems to me that you you have only a very few number of options in answer to that question. And you know the standard answer that people give is well, it's because of the fall. They were, um, you know, they were. Th- things are this way now because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and their sin, right? Yeah, yeah. But the question is, well, how does that solve the theodicy dilemma? How does that how does that resolve the question of animal suffering? Because mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't it doesn't seem that there's any direct line between between uh, human beings, uh, you know, eating fruit and suddenly lions having sharp talons and and uh, canine teeth.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: You know, the, the one doesn't logically lead to the other. So there still has to be some some causal explanation for the transformation. And so what is it that causes the transformation? And so at that point, you're left with, it seems to me, basically three choices. Either you can say that, um, that God supernaturally transformed these animals, or you can say that, uh, that they were transformed supernaturally by, but, but by a demonic power. You know, the devil did it.
0: Okay, yeah.
2: Or you can say, well, they were transformed naturalistically. They evolved somehow. Yeah. And, and there there are dilemmas which, with each of those three answers. If you say that the devil did it and that all the animal world is basically supernaturally, uh, miraculously almost transformed, then you're basically um, ceding a huge amount of God's creation to the devil. And it almost, you know, swerves into a kind of Gnostic theology where the material world around us is evil instead of God's good creation. hmm you're basically giving giving satanic power a lot of sway over the creation in a way that the genesis narratives never really really uh suggest very strongly. Hmm. Let you me know? um
0: let, if i if i may let me play devil's advocate here. So, um uh, mm-hmm. isn't uh the devil referred to as the the prince of this world? Um uh, so maybe he has some authority?
2: Oh yeah, un- undoubtedly. But I think the question remains with regard to creation. Mm. Um do we find evidence of that in scripture that of a supernatural transformation of the animal kingdom that that makes creatures uh that were formerly, you know, docile and peaceful, peaceful animals into suddenly, you know, carnivorous creatures? I I just don't know what text text exactly you would point to Mm -hmm. if anything i would say that the biblical evidence kind of strongly supports the opposite view um you know one of the things that i i think uh, christians forget is that there's not just one creation account in the bible there's actually multiple creation narratives in different parts of scripture so you know psalm 104 is a creation narrative and it includes descriptions of lions uh not just lions, but but lions on the hunt. Mm. And and there's no hint in it of in Psalms 104 that being wicked or bad. In fact, far from it, it seems like God is is celebrating his his creation, you know. Yeah. Um, another would be the final chapters of the book of Job. Mm. Yeah. Where God, you know, when God speaks from out of the whirlwind and says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? you know um that's a creation narrative that uh, that then unfolds and he basically talks about his creation and um and it doesn't sound like it's particularly um you know domesticated creation it's it's ferocious it's wild he talks about creating these great sea monsters the Leviathan and the behemoth you know yeah right yeah. and um and there's something about that account in Gen- in job that I think is very important for Christians as a corrective to a certain kind of domesticated reading of Genesis chapter one, because I think a lot of Christians um, develop, you know, have have theologies of creation taken almost entirely from Genesis one where Adam and Eve are basically represented as being the pinnacle of creation, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they, they have this high, this high place They're They are the, um, the ones who are uniquely created in God's own image, and they represent the culmination of the creation week. Mm. And that's that's great, but if taken alone, I think it has the danger of, of leading to a kind of anthropocentric um, kind of view of, of our place in God's create, creation, you know? yeah and I think there's a there's a necessary balance to that in the book of Job, where God's creation is vastly beyond human comprehension and and it's not kind of um, something that can be cut down to human human expectations or human needs or something like that. It's actually something that far exceeds our our kind of finite, very small human, Human place in the cosmic scheme of things.
0: Yep, good.
2: And so, some you know somehow somehow holding those two ideas in tension is, I think, what is necessary. I'm not saying forget one and go with the other. I'm saying that both are part of the biblical vision of creation.
0: Yeah, nice, Ron. Uh, we've got to take a break here. When we will come back, though, we will continue uh, exploring these uh, uh, intriguing ideas uh, and uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of a step back from. Perhaps the way many uh, traditional American evangelicals have been thinking about the creation narratives, uh, if they've been aware of even, as you say, these other uh, passages in Scripture which lend to to that theme uh, or motif. Uh, So stick with us through this short break from our sponsors.
1: You're listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Evangelical Christians are talking about hell. What if we believe what we believe because we've always believed it? What if the Gospel is really a matter of life and death? We want you to open your mind, open your Bible and rethink hell. At RethinkingHell.com, evangelicals look at what the Bible says about hell, putting conventional and controversial views to the test. Let's say there's this Christian apologist. You love their message, but have trouble finding their videos, their articles, or social media posts. How do you stay connected to them? We're on it. Defenders Media uses the tools of the digital age to create content for your favorite apologists. We give them more screen time, more digital soapboxes, and more presents to deliver more of the content that you love. That's what
2: we do. I know that social media is important to those of you who follow my work. Many respond to my videos and posts on Facebook and Twitter, but it becomes impossible after a while to keep up with it all and to continue with research. That's why I'm thrilled that we have found a solution, Defenders Media. Whether it's a website, whether it's printed material, whether it's a question on graphics, I cannot do what I do and reach my audience without the help of Defenders Media. They have been integral
1: in helping me to reach my audience. Defenders Media ensures consistent content reaches your hand from today's leading apologists and apologetic ministries like Mike Lycona, Apologetics 315, the Veracity Hill Podcast with Kurt Jarris, and more. To learn more, text the word DEFENDERS to
0: 555-888 and we'll send you a free PDF of the top five ways to share the gospel online. Thanks for sticking with us through that short break from our sponsors. If you'd like to learn how you can become a sponsor, you can go to our website, click on the sponsor button there, and there are different options. Uh, we'd love to get your support for our program to help keep us going and growing uh, a number of different sponsorship levels. Or if you just want to become one of our patrons, you can donate, whether it be $5, 10 or $20 a month. We'd love to get your support of our program. And if you're a fan of the show, please be sure to give us a review on iTunes, the Google Play Store, or really on Facebook where we've had most of our things. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, where we have been actively working on uploading all of our uh, programs and we uh, uh, love uh, coming uh, soon Be streaming to you. Uh, All right, well, on today's program, we are joined by Ron Osborne. He is the author of Death Before the Fall, uh, which has been uh, a controversial book in its own right for some people, for others, perhaps not as controversial. A number of uh, Old Testament figures I see that have uh, endorsed your work here, Ron. And spoken uh, highly of it, and that um, must be a high honor. Especially as you mentioned, you're not um, you're not an Old Testament scholar uh, by training, a theologian in any respect. But these are uh, things that you've been thinking about for uh, many years, and uh, through the process uh, in your own denomination, uh, gave rise to some writings, which ultimately came to uh, form into this book. Um, Now, in the first half of the program, we uh, sort of got introduced to uh, some of these ideas uh, about uh, difficulties with the uh, more literal uh, approach. And uh, Ron noted that um, um, perhaps they aren't really literalistic because they don't go far enough uh, in their readings. Um, But where we left off, Ron, we were talking about um, sort of some of the different approaches one might have to take to understanding the fall – Um, and what resulted in uh, animals becoming carnivorous. Um, And you then also mentioned here something uh, I I took down in my notes about how humans might be, we might be viewing things very anthropocentric. Um, And so let me ask you this. So on your view, would you say that, um, you know, at least the way I was raised, you know, humans are the the sort of capstone of creation. Uh, And so... On your view, do you think that humans could continue to evolve into, and this is, a, I guess, more a scientific question for you, and I'm not sure if you have a view, so that's why I'm I'm curious. Um, could humans continue to evolve and then um, become a different uh, species eventually down the line?
2: Oh, I I have not really thought much about that question, <laughs> but I but I, I don't I don't really i I don't really see us evolving any time soon into some some new kind of creature or being and i'm also by the way very very i think I think uh, Christians should be very skeptical about some of these projects by some people who, you know, um, you've probably heard the terms transhumanism or, uh, you know, the idea that humans can kind of take control of their own evolutionary trajectory and somehow escape their, you know, their human limitations and become something superior, whether that's through, uh, gene
0: editing,
2: gene, yeah. Um, genetic manipulation or, or, uh, or through merging, technology you know using technology or something well okay all of that kind of stuff i'm very very skeptical of and i actually wrote another book which is titled humanism and the death of god which which was published this past year from by oxford and it's a book that is a critique of of um of a you know certain kinds of atheistic humanism that Mm. um you know, anyways. So I'm not trying to promote another book on your show, but <laughs> uh, the long and short of it is that in that book I say some things that are very critical of um, of a kind of ultra Dar- Darwinism and uh, or Darwinianism and some some things that would be. Um, you, you know, some readers might be surprised when they read "Death Before the Fall," where I'm really critiquing biblical literalism. They might think, "Well, I'm just a gung ho evolutionist or mm. something." Mm-hmm. But if you read that my other book, you'll find me um, issuing what I think is a quite robust critique of Darwinism as well. So, mm. and um, as yeah.
0: as a complete non scientist, uh, gosh, the last science <laughs> class I took was freshman year at Biola University. Um, And I don't even think I got an A in that class. (laughs) Um, So as as a non-science person, it's been my observation as someone interested in uh, apologetics and related issues um, – winsome apologetics I should say – that there are uh, coming out more critiques even from non-Christians on uh, Darwinian and neo-Darwinian approaches – to uh, to understanding, you know, human biology and how we got here, and I don't know. Again, where you stand, and there are, of course, different subcamps in all these debates. Um, but uh, so you s- say that you know you have some criticisms there. Um, so what's been sort of, if if you could, you know, be uh, what's that terminology? A bellwether? Is that the right term? Uh, where you're you're putting your feeler out for the weather? Um, on the state of that debate, what what has that been like?
2: Uh, honestly, I I haven't been, especially since writing this book, I haven't really been following closely uh, the debates between people in the the Christian community around creation and evolution. Okay, but but I can tell you the kinds of thinkers who have been most helpful to me. Um, you know, one of my favorite theologians at the moment is David Bentley Hart. Yeah who, you know, Eastern Orthodox theologian, he has a book called The Experience of God, mm-hmm. um, which is which is a terrific book, and I think is a good model for Christians of how to engage with uh, these kinds of questions. And one of the things that Hart does in that book is he critiques, he, he, he's a very um, strong critic of, of a kind of philosophical naturalism that is... Uh, you know, basically blissfully lacking in self-awareness when it comes to its own metaphysical and philosophical assumptions. Mm. And he he does a great job critiquing, uh, you know, naturalism as being logically incoherent, really. But at the same time in that book, he has um, some passages where he is very very um critical as well of a certain kind of creationism or even like the intelligent design movement mm. and i think that his critique of these these attempts to shore up one's christianity using scientific types of of uh proofs or arguments is that um in, in a certain way they are actually succumbing to the very thing that they say claim to be um
0: resisting mm. Interesting Now know, yeah, so mm-hmm. I was gonna say lest we go too far into his thought um, <coughs> I, I wanted that seems like a good segue to ask you about the fourth chapter in your book here titled Progressive versus degenerate uh, degenerating science uh, seems a mm-hmm. bit, bit related here. So um, there are these different paradigms in the Christian community as, as you'd mentioned mm-hmm. there's you know intelligent design is sort of one paradigm. Um, you've got your literal, if we can call it that literal paradigm, uh, which carries with it, you know, flood geology, this own terminology of a different way of viewing, uh, a subfield of, you know, within science. Um, and then you've got sort of theistic evolution, uh, there that those are sort of the three main camps. I don't know if there are any, uh, other ones out there. Um, so in, in your view though, what, um, what makes uh, an approach, you know, sort of progress or progressive versus approaches to science which sort of take us back?
2: Well, you know, I accept scientific methodologies um, on their own – on really their own terms. I think that Christians should not be afraid of science. I think that Christians should embrace what scientists have to tell us, uh, including about questions of origins. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we should not be uh, afraid of, of uh, deep, the idea of deep time, you know, that, that the, the universe is billions of years old. I um, All of that I accept. I also accept the idea of common ancestry. So none of this is problematic to me. I think where science gets it wrong is when it kind of evolves from being a methodological tool into being a metaphysical prejudice.
3: mm, mm.
2: So when, when you have scientists whose, method, you know, materialist methodology then becomes a larger claim about all of reality, well, they're no, no longer really doing science. That's metaphysics.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, I and that's, say, that is hmm? – I was going to say I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Uh, in my uh, studies of New Testament uh, scholarship, <laughs> you see folks that think, well, historians can't uh, get into miracles – you know, and so <laughs> that at that point, you know, are they really doing history anymore, or are they making, or carrying philosophical uh, baggage into their methodology? Um, so yeah, so I certainly understand there where, like you said, you get folks carrying that over, and they're no longer doing science, or they're infusing their epistemology with um, you know metaphysical claims.
2: Yeah. So for me, that's kind of the point at which the discussion uh, is most interesting, and the point at which, and, and that's the place where I think Christians need to engage. But as far as as far as um, valid, legitimate scientific work goes, I think that um, it's a it's a terrible mistake when Christians try to shore up their uh, their Christian worldview using certain kinds of, of defensive apologetic scientific moves um, essentially trying to beat science at its own game and time and again that just that kind of effort has has fallen short I think
3: mm.
2: and so you know if, if there are scientists out there who happen to be believers who are dedicated to trying to use their their tools and their methods to Prove uh, flood geology or a young Earth creationist kind of paradigm. Well, you know, my reaction is more power to them. They're you know go at it, but um, but I think we have to be honest that to date, the scientific evidence does not seem to support what they're arguing for, um, and and to me that shouldn't be a, a faith shattering kind of conclusion for a Christian to make. Mm. You know.
0: Let me, let me ask you this, sort of going um, broad, if I may, um, mm-hmm. does it seem – if there's animal suffering before the fall, is that, um, mm-hmm. is that just a hard pill that some people have to swallow uh, in an uncomfortable position? We have to s- just say, yep, uh, that's the way that God brought it about, and, but that's part of the, the beautiful ecosystem.
2: Well, I want to go back to the conversation we were having earlier because, you know, I had mentioned to you earlier that there were these three possible solutions to the problem of animal suffering in the present, right? right. Yep. One, one was a naturalistic answer, one was a uh, demonic answer, and one would be a divine a divine answer, right? Mhm. And so um for the reasons I stated earlier it's just not for me theologically sound to try to explain the world as we know it on demonic supernatural um tampering with with matter you know Sure I I don't think that's to to me like I say that verges on gnosticism where you have kind of like a like a an evil creator god who yeah. um yeah, and you attribute
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you attribute the creation, as we see it, to this God, and the whole goal is to get off this planet to somewhere else, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, that's just—it's—it's it's not only sort of—it doesn't only beg credulity for any for any kind of serious, thoughtful person in the world today. I think it also is theologically unsound. And so the alternative, um, the the other alternative would be the the naturalistic one, where you say, well, everything evolved just. In a natural, in a you know, somewhat natural way, even maybe through a process of evolution, and so you ended up with uh, lions developing predatory instincts and having predatory tools, and the same for sharks, I guess. Same for crocodiles, and and yeah. on and on. Or, right? or, or
0: even, I mean, while we think of the you know the big <coughs> dangerous animals, uh, even insects that eat other insects. I mean, you are talking about. Yeah, God's creatures eating God's other creatures.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's you know that's another that's another path, and I think that one of the um, one of the quandaries there for creationists is that creationists have oftentimes made a big deal about saying that there's not enough time for evolution to have happened. And yet, suddenly, we're being told that we need to embrace an almost like hyper accelerated evolution that almost immediately results in all these creatures becoming predators. You know, in this kind of way, mm-hmm. not only not only predatory in their instincts, but perfectly adapted to predation in in their anatomy, in their physiology, and everything. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah. Right. So the tigers go from having uh, flattened teeth to sharpened teeth.
2: You're right. And this happens, you know. I mean, as far as the biblical record is concerned, it's it, it would have to be instantaneous because we have predatory animals being described very early on in the book, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it how? And, and it's of course it, it really starts to stretch things when for for the the strictest of young earth creationists, the kinds of uh, people who subscribe to you know, ushers chronology where you would have essentially, uh, the world is only approximately 6,000 years old. I mean, that's, that's especially problematic if you have that kind of a time frame, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, but in any case, you know, this is still giving a tremendous amount of power to the the, the natural world, which I guess in itself isn't, isn't a, a terrible problem, but um, but, whether you take this naturalistic approach where you say, well, the creation became adapted this way somehow, or if you take the even stronger view, the other, the final alternative, which is to say, well, God supernaturally transformed the creation. And some people use the language of curse, referring to the language in Genesis where it talks about God cursing the ground.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, for some Christians, they actually go far beyond what the text says, and they say, well, God cursed all the animals. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say that, right? It says that he cursed the ground. It doesn't talk about him cursing animals, but some Christians infer that and say, well, the the creation in its entirety must have been cursed by God and then therefore supernaturally transformed.
3: Mm.
2: Well, whichever of those two approaches you take, the naturalistic one or the, the, the kind of supernatural intervention, it seems to me that that both of those paths don't actually solve the problem of animal suffering at all. In fact, they actually greatly amplify it. They make the problem worse. Mm. And the reason they make the problem worse is because they basically pin the problem of animal suffering directly on God. Mm. You know, Adam and Eve sin, and therefore God punishes animals. Well, how does that, how does that, You know, um, how does that address our concerns about divine justice in any way? And the analogy I give in the book would be like, imagine if you had some kids and you told your kids, hey, don't play with the stove, it can burn you. And the kids go ahead and play with the stove. And you say, right, you need to learn a lesson. You need to know that stoves are hot. So watch this. I'm going to put the family cat on the stove.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. What does the animal yeah. have to do with the human's actions?
2: Exactly. Yeah. The animals now. I mean, your child is going to learn something for sure. They're going to learn that the stove is hot, but they're also going to learn, learn that you're a monster.
3: <laughs>
2: you know. So, so the the problem remains. The theodicy problem is persists for everyone. There right. simply is no there's no solution to the theodicy problem that really is com- going to be completely clear and satisfactory, whether you're an ev- atheistic evolutionist or a uh, 6,000-year-old Earth creationist.
0: Right. I got gotcha. you. So for for yeah. people, if they, they feel like um, animal suffering before the fall is unjust, you would say, well, wait a second. it's un- It seems to be unjust uh, no matter which way you take it. There's no – person that's on moral high ground here in terms of the theological, uh, you know, take on it.
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, there is no – the theodicy problem is just not solved in any way, shape, or form as far as I can tell by literalism.
3: Yeah. Huh. It's and,
2: and, yeah. and in certain ways, I would argue, it's actually amplified. Because if you're a theistic evolutionist, you might have a view that says, in some sense, one of the one of the things that God creates when God creates is freedom, mm-hmm. or you know, a, a a kind of world in which God is not fully in control of everything. Because in order for things to be free, God has to allow for them to have. Um, Sort of
0: a sufficient sense capacity. of freedom, right? Right,
2: yeah, some capacity for, for development and so on. And, and so, maybe you know, that, that to me, in some ways, can be a, at least a somewhat more satisfying answer that we have a world that includes um, predatory processes and, and animals that, that are a certain way because God has created a, a universe that, that also contains um, indeterminacy. God yeah. isn't, you know, as, I'm, as you can tell from the way I'm talking, I'm not a Calvinist, right? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, um, but now i that by God the way. Christian,
0: so yeah.
2: <laughs> I agree with you. Okay, we're, <laughs> then, then then maybe we're, you know, so so in other words, if you're if you're not a Calvinist, um, you can you can envision a, a creation that is actually a kind of unfolding process in which God leaves open, in some sense. uh uh, you know possibilities for the created order without being directly responsible for everything that happens you know yep yep And, and i don't know i'm not saying that this is a tidy or neat solution to the problem but for me it's a little bit better solution than any of the other three that i named to you that god is supernaturally cursing and transforming the creation in which case god is directly responsible you know
3: yeah
2: or, or even the other two, which are more passive, like well, God just kind of um, walks away from it and lets the devil take over, or something like that.
3: Sure, sure, yeah,
0: good, uh, Ron. This has been uh, an engaging discussion. Um, we're already coming up short on our time here. I feel like I could keep going for another hour with you, um, but it's it's been hey. a lot. It's been a lot of fun for me. Um, before we let you go, let me ask you this. So, two things. Um, one. <laughs> You would have not have killed any animals uh, before the fall if you were there uh, because you are a vegetarian.
2: Uh. <laughs> so, hey, well, I'm, I'm just uh, – Kurt, I'm just a vegetarian because I find it easier sneaking up on vegetables, OK?
0: Yes, right. Well, I guess that would be easier. <laughs> but, but let me I'm, – I'm really curious about this. So you participated uh, in an Ultimate Frisbee tournament in North Korea. Like North Korea, not South Korea, in North Korea. Um, Tell me about that. I mean there aren't – I think you're probably the only guest. I've been doing this program for over three years. You're probably the only guest I've had uh, and possibly the only American I know that has set foot on North Korean soil.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That was uh, back in 2012. It was a good time. Spent about a week there with uh, with a group of about 20 guys. And uh, we, we went over to do a kind of goodwill uh, sports diplomacy thing and yeah, yeah played fris- ultimate frisbee for about a week with uh, North Koreans and taught school kids how to play frisbee. And it was really interesting because uh, we discovered that pretty much no one in North Korea has ever even seen a frisbee.
0: Oh, my um, god! It was <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! They haven't even so seen a frisbee.
2: <sighs> that's that's what we were told by our guides, and uh, and everywhere we went, you know, we would take the frisbee with us. We would find ourselves in, you know, um, in the the main square there in Pyongyang, where they have the military parades. You know, where the missile yeah. uh, the big missile trucks come come rolling through, and all we would be out there playing frisbee in the, right in that square. Wow. and uh, pe- people would be watching us and uh, you could see people kind of eyeing you and with just, but trying not trying to avoid looking like they're looking at you Yeah. and so, so you just toss them the frisbee and then they just break out laughing and they immediately want to start playing with you so.
0: Yeah, because, wow, yeah. I mean I don't want to be like over stereotypical here but like, you know, they realize they wouldn't get shot if they started you know, playing ultimate frisbee uh,
2: you know, the, the thing about North Korea that I found really interesting and striking was, um, you know, there there are such stereotyped images of North Korea in the American media. Yeah. But when you go over there, you realize that people are people. And uh, that's not an apology in any way, shape or form for the brutal North Korean military regime sure. dictatorship, you know. Right, right. But, uh, but still, I think it's good for Americans to understand and, and realize that uh, – that yeah. In North Korea, even there are there are people who love their kids and have families, and you know, yep. and who who appreciate a good joke and will smile if you smile at them, and you know. So, mm. um, so it was it was for me a good experience going over and, and actually just encountering North Koreans as as uh, more like people than we sometimes see in the media.
0: Yep, very nice. Good, Ronald. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us on the program today. Uh, for those that are interested, we'll put a link at our website. Uh, here for Death Before the Fall, uh, Biblical Literism, and the Problem of Animal Suffering. Intriguing thoughts. Thank you for your efforts. And, and Ron, I'm sure you knew that you would get flack for it. So, um, I think in that respect, it speaks to your courage as well to get a book like this published out there. So um,
2: Hey, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, for your listeners, I just want to say the purpose of the book is not to convert anyone, to a particular point of view but i hope it gives people just a, another perspective some ideas and things to think about
0: yep yep ron i've got to sign off here but if you could stay on the line for me i'd love to chat with you after uh, afterward
2: sounds great much appreciated
0: thank you well, that does it for our program today. I'm grateful for the continued support of our patrons and the partnerships that we have with our sponsors. They are Defenders Media, Consult Kevin, The Sky Floor, Rethinking Hell, and the uh, Illinois, the Illinois Family Institute, and Fox Restoration. I want to thank our technical producer, Chris, for all the fine work that he does week in, week out. To our guest today, uh, Ron Osborne, uh, again, for this wonderful book that you should check out and consider and think through, if only, if you don't agree with Ron, if only to understand the other side. Uh, that can be very helpful. And last but certainly not least, I want to thank you for listening in and for striving for truth on faith, politics, and society.
1: You've been listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. This is a listener-supported program. For more resources, including past shows, visit veracityhill.com.